And let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, have you, uh, have you heard, I'm sure you've heard the saying, uh, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Have you ever tried to motivate someone through fear? Fear is not a right motivator. Now, there are times where ultimatums have to be laid down and people have to suffer consequences, and sometimes that can be a motivator. But what we really know is that the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So as, as we come to this passage today, which I find yet again another challenging passage for us to go through, we want to understand the tension that there is in Scripture but, and, and acknowledge that between that love of Jesus which motivates us to obey and be formed and shaped into his image. And then this testing, not of our neighbor or, or somebody down the street or our husband or wife or what have you, but ourselves, this testing to see if Jesus' warning and his charge needs to be applied to us. And very simply, as we're going through, there, there are both sides to this story. There's the love which casts out fear for those who are in the kingdom, but then there's this warning which instills fear for those who are outside the kingdom. So we're going to see that as we go through. And as, as disciples, I think this is the, this is our main thrust as we're going to look at this passage. Um, I, th- I, I think this, this passage is one that could be preached, has been preached, will be preached with great urgency to scare one kind of out of hell. So the Lord's coming back. We don't know when, and this is what it's going to look like when he returns. And so therefore it's turn or burn and do it today. Now, that message is really still in there, but I think there's an overall bigger picture that we want to see, and, and that's where we're having to contend with the fear and that love that drives us uh, to be motivated to, to actually follow him. So as disciples, we are already part of the kingdom. If, if you are a believer in Jesus, then you are a disciple. You are a uh, lifelong learner, follower of him. So if we, if we are calling ourselves Christian, it's not some mere title. We are acknowledging we are disciples of his. We are followers of his. So we are already in the kingdom, and therefore it matters how we live in the kingdom. We're going to talk about this already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. And first, we're going to see the already part. So this, there's a, he's, he's talking about the kingdom coming. He has talked about the kingdom coming, and he's going to talk about the kingdom coming. There's a, a, um, an aspect in which the kingdom has come, but there's another aspect which the kingdom is going to come in greater fulfillment when he returns. So we're going to look at the already of the kingdom initially. So in verse 20, 20 and 21, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, 
The kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that you can observe, that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Uh, chapter 12, which we've been through, we're in a, uh, we're going through the book of Luke, and so we've entitled our series that you may know the truth, because that's what he tells Theophilus, the guy who Luke is writing to. He's, he's writing all these details so that Theophilus will know the truth. And in chapter 12, we've already talked about this to some degree. He, in that one, he talked about there's a cloud that forms in the west, and it's coming this way, and you know it's going to rain. And we compared, I compared that to here. It's what happens here. I look over toward Ohio, and you see the clouds are coming, and before long it's raining at my house. So you don't have to be a Willard Scott to know and discern those kinds of times. Willard Scott was a weatherman. Sorry. And never, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even know a famous contemporary person to uh, Willard Scott at this point. Anybody would know a famous weather person. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, there you go. You have to be no Jim Cantore to to know it's going to rain, and that may still need more explaining. But at any rate, um, but he was, but he, but he quickly turns. He's like, you can do that, but you're failing to read the times when the kingdom is in your midst. That's that's chapter 12. Now he's here, and we're talking about a very similar thing. And Jesus wanted his followers, and wants his followers, to be able to discern the culture, to be able to discern the time, to be able to read the times, and to be able to discern and interpret God's word. So we, he's asking us to interpret God's word. He's asking them at that time to interpret the times, meaning they should know that the kingdom has come. They should know that the kingdom is in their midst. If they were interpreting these things rightly, they would recognize him for who he is. But they are failing to see, because it says this is a Pharisee, so they're failing to see who he is. Now, perhaps they thought that this kingdom would start as a political movement, and so they could point to a localized beginning of it and say, point to here or there, and say, there it begins, there it starts. I can see the revolution happening. But these people were so blind to the truth, they were so blind to the truth of God's word, and then so blind to what was going on around them at that time that they didn't recognize the king of the kingdom in their midst. The king of the kingdom, the king of kings, was preaching the gospel of the kingdom with gospel kingdom power. They had seen the signs that he had done. Yet they didn't recognize who he was while he was among them. There are those who are awakened by the Spirit and they come into the kingdom through repentance and faith. And then there are others, and and this is what we're seeing in this context. The same thing is true today. The gospel goes forth. The Spirit awakens some and they enter into the kingdom through repentance and faith. And then there are others that though the kingdom would be in their midst, they cannot recognize it. And this is the situation with these people who he's talking to at this point. A basic understanding of the kingdom would be God's, it has three parts, God's people in God's place under God's rule. So there's a a who and a what and a why aspect to the kingdom. And first we're going to look at the people. So this God's people thing first. And it's, and, and, and the kingdom and rule of God, and that's, and that's where we don't have geographical bounds, and we would say is the kingdom equivalent to the church. 
No. Is the church in the kingdom? Well, yes. But the kingdom is greater than just the local expressions of the church or the church in general. So what is that? Well, the church, the, the kingdom is um, a people of God under the rule of God in the place of God. So that's what we're, this is what we're going to break down just a little here. We're going to look at the people, and the reality is, is God's kingdom and his rule has been happening since day one, since creation. So there was a particular place, there were particular people, and there was a particular rule with Adam and Eve. And then they, they couldn't, they couldn't be obedient, they, they sinned, they fell. As time goes by, he calls Abraham, who is the father of all who believe. And so all who believe are in Abraham. They're children of Abraham, the Bible says. And so, out of Abraham, then there became, there was out of Moses, and then there was David, and they led people. They led people in all kinds of ways. The people couldn't stay obedient. They couldn't follow faithfully. They would stray. But those were God's people. They were in particular places, and they had a particular reason to follow him because they were under his rule. So he rescues people, and then he rules over them, and they live in submission to him. So all those things were pointing to Jesus, the, 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 the prophets, the priests, the kings, and even the people of Israel are pointing to Jesus. So Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all these things. When those, when those people couldn't follow faithfully, the new Israel, Jesus, follows faithfully. When David, the king, could not rule uh, well and faithfully, and then, the king, and then that line of kings after him f- failed miserably, it's a, it's a type and an anti-type. There's, there's something going on here with the rule of God's people, which points directly to Jesus. So that's the people of God. So since creation to this time and place, even now, God has a people unto himself. Those are the people of the kingdom. And then all through the Old Testament, God had a place. And so there was the garden. So that was the the, the place of Adam and Eve, and then there was the promised land, and then there was the tabernacle, tabernacle, and then there was the temple, and that's where God would visit his people. So there was this place. All those things find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. I saw someone proclaiming that the temple would be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and they were celebrating this fact as if it was a fulfillment of prophecy. And I think that that's just not right. I think we don't need anything greater than the temple of Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus said one greater than the temple is here. That means him. He is the temple. He is the place of God's presence. Those who are indwelt by Christ, who are in Christ, are in him, in him, and therefore he becomes the place for God's people to dwell. And those, and then those who are in Christ, they too are indwelt by him, and they become the place of God's dwelling. They come, become the place of God's ruling. So the why is this rule of God. So we have people, we have place, and then we have rule. In this fulfillment of Jesus, Jesus lived in perfect submission to God's rules, to God's law. He had a, a perfect obedience, and it enabled him to say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, meaning to my heavenly Father. And all those who are in Christ are under that rule of God. So they're in the, they're, because they're in Christ, they are in the place of God, but then they are also under the rule of God. 
So they live in submission to him. This is the already aspect of the kingdom coming. God has a people, he has a place, and he has a rule from the beginning. But the fulfillment of the promised kingdom began when Jesus left the glories of heaven and became man and dwelt among us. And he then would say, as he announced that the kingdom was coming, he would tell people to repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. So there is this aspect in which this kingdom has already come. Being the fulfillment of the kingdom, he was God's person and God's place under God's rule. Then all those who are in him are God's people in God's place under God's rule. So for those who believe, the calling and the warning to us is how we respond to the call of the Lord and submit to the Lordship of Christ in all areas of our life. It's not a matter of how well we articulate fundamental truths, as important as fundamental truths are. It matters how we live. He actually cares how we seek His will, how we live in submission to Him, how we take every thought captive, how we honor Him with our lives as we worship Him, not not only as we come on a Sunday, but as we live our lives doing those mundane tasks do we bring glory and honor to the Lord? Are we in submission to Him? Frequently, I'll hop up on my soapbox and I talk about how these there, I know people, and I see lots of them, who appear to be unchanged, not transformed by the Holy Spirit, but yet they call themselves Christians, and they, yet they don't really read God's Word, they don't hang out with God's people, they don't come to God's house, but they will call themselves Christians. And that bothers me some, because I, I'm like, where's your fruit? Why, why would you say that? Maybe, if you love God, you would like some of the things... If, if you love Jesus, you probably like some of the things he likes. He said he liked his church. He gave himself for her. So you're telling me you love Jesus. I, I love my wife, but I don't want to have anything to do with her. She has all kinds of interests, but I don't want to do anything like that. I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to see her. She has people whom she loves. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Could I really sell you on the fact that I really love my wife? One might say I've just given lip service to that. I saw a Tozer quote, A.W. Tozer, who pastored in West Virginia at one point. He said, the Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that, he said. I think it was, I think, Max Lucado said, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you far too much to let you stay that way. I think that's powerful. I think that I think the reality is, is when you have been born again from above, when the Holy Spirit enters you, you are not the same individual. So we can claim whatever we want, but Jesus cares how we live. So I think the prevailing question for us to to contend with is, what fruit have you to show that you are under the rule of God? That your life is in submission to Him? Where does the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, here's an area of your life you have not yet submitted to Him? And that may take some time to identify. Let's look at the not yet aspect of the kingdom. So in 22, does then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he may suffer he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So we, so we have the, the kingdom being inaugurated 
and Jesus' coming. And then it will be consummated in his return. So we, we sometimes talk about the inaugurated kingdom, the beginning of it, and then sometimes we talk about the consummated kingdom, that when he returns in the rule of God when all evil is gone. His disciples would see him ascend to heaven in glory, but they would be suffering while in his absence. And there would be times where, because they were followers of Jesus, they would suffer greatly. And in those times, they may want to see him return. Now, since, since the, they, they didn't get none of those, got to see him return. We're still waiting. We're wanting to see him return. And it's in times where things are tough. You know, sometimes you hang out with some of those people who know those Bible words and they'll say sometimes, Maranatha, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly, come quickly. They, they see the evil that surrounds them. They recognize the suffering that they're under. They're longing for the release and the, fi- the finality of the kingdom coming. So they say, come quickly, Lord. So we're still waiting on this aspect for the fulfillment when he comes and returns. But when he does, it won't be one where somebody has to say, look over here, look over there. It will be something that everybody everywhere knows. They, everybody everywhere will know when it happens. It won't be hidden from anyone. He says that first he must suffer and be rejected. And he was on his way to the cross. This has been a long march as we go from chapter to chapter, but he's been heading toward Jerusalem, heading toward the cross for raptors, and he's still on his way, and he knows that he's going to suffer on the cross. But of course, that wouldn't be the end of his rejection. People will continue to reject him. People continue today to reject him. And then at one point, when he reappears, when he comes back, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. It will not be hidden from anyone. Now, this rejection may not be as blatant as we may think. And sometimes in the scriptures, it becomes very blatant, this rejection of Jesus. And and then, especially when we have some help with some of those, some old saints who've gone before us and help draw us into the story so we understand more what we're reading, we say, okay, that's a blatant uh, rejection of Jesus. I really don't see people doing that today. Well, okay, it may not be blatant for us. Let's look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until a day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I've often thought about Noah preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching, building, preaching, building, preaching. Can you imagine he was the scorn of the neighborhood? Have you seen what goofy Noah's doing? Have you heard what he's saying? This is Noah's at it again. I can just imagine. He, he was the scorn of the neighborhood, and nobody's paying attention to him. Nobody's listening. They're going about their daily life. They are marrying him, being given in marriage, and eating and drinking. And they're ignoring what he's doing. But then ultimately, he enters the ark. The Lord shuts the door. And the rains come, and everybody's wiped out. This is, a, this, is a, this is a startling picture, but it's just as true for us today. How consumed are we by the lure of our normal life. We are among people who are concerned with eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling, building and planting. We live the world of more. We're bombarded by advertisements all the time to encourage us to buy more, to not be satisfied with what we have. So we need something better. We need a better 
house or we need a better car. We need better, more stuff, whatever the stuff might be. I find sometimes obscure things I have that then when you start looking about it, there's always something better out there. Like I could replace this obscure tool that I never use with yet another one that's better. And, now, and there's nothing wrong with having nice things. But for many, their stuff consumes their thoughts. It consumes their energies. It consumes their finances. So much so that they don't have time to consider their own sin and their need for a Savior. In verse 33, Jesus says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In chapter 9, we talked about this as well. He's, he's kind of, as, as, as a good preacher would, he, he's repeating himself. He's given specific context in this one that the judgment's coming, so people want to turn back because they're so enamored with their stuff, they want to turn back and go get it. But in the process, like Lot's wife, you may perish. It's that tension between that thing that's earthly that I can see and the spiritual that I hear about but I can't see. Can it be real? Do I really believe in it? Do I really trust in it? I said I believe it. Do I trust in it? We're to heed Jesus' charge to let go of the things of the world so that they don't have the grasp on us and then trust in him so that we rest in his grasp. As we try to hold on to the things of the world, his illustration is that we will lose our very soul at the time of judgment. So the the problem that we have is indifference. That's what they were contending with in the days of uh, Lot, it's, the day, it's what they were contending with in the days of Noah. It was just an indifference. They didn't, they didn't care. They were tied up with the ordinary, the mundane, the average, the just getting by in life, and they wouldn't heed the warnings. But the Lord knows our hearts. So in verse 34, he says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So upon his return, when he comes where everybody knows initially here, there's going to be some subtle, discriminate, and eternal effect where he makes that kingdom known because he's going to take those who are his into his arms. Now that outside appearance may look the same from the two in the bed or the two at the same mill, but one will be taken and the other one left. And yet, this is the, and these are these are the images that kind of bring this to a reality that you're like, well, my gosh, which one will I be? This is not some mistake. It's not happenstance. It's by God's sovereign choice, and he will make no mistake about it. He knows who are his. He knows of those who love. We may be able to lie to ourselves. We may be able to lie to our, our friends or our family or those pesky, pesky uh, church people or my neighbors or whatever, and I can tell them things, but the Lord knows the truth. And at, the, at that time, he will come and take those who are his. Those who he knows are his people who love him. And he intends to bring them home. God knows our hearts, and he knows who loves him. So for us, may we be mindful of the ordinary life and be willing to set it aside and, and live our lives as we are under the rule of God. How we live matters. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.